0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, Brett Favre. Here come the Packers, Favre,
1: Robert Brooks, Look at him go, he could go all the way Way hit it the stands. Oh, they love their pack. And now,
0: here's, here's your host, Brett Boone.
1: Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with an 11-time Pro Bowler. He's a Super Bowl champion, a Hall of Famer, and he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Favre. Brett, thanks for coming on the program.
2: Thanks for having me, Brett. It's not often I get to do a podcast with another Brett.
1: I'm telling you. And, and well, you don't get this because, you know, most Bretts are two T's and you just move on. When I was playing, nobody ever forgot because I'm a one T Brett. So they never forget that I'm a one T Brett. Now, as I'm getting older and, and, you know, I go to Starbucks, Brett, it's always two T's and it drives me crazy. I had Saberhagen on the program, you know, a few months back and he's, he's a one T guy. So I get it. I was out on the course today. I was thinking of you. My back's killing me, and I'm thinking, Favre, he just throws on the copper fit. Would that work for me? <laughs> Believe me,
2: I, I use it. When you, it's funny you say your back was hurting. I'm hunched over like a, like an old man. Of course, I'm 52, so like
1: uh, I'm 52 I as well. Be. My back's killing. That's a lot of hard swings.
2: Well, I, I've had eight epidurals on my back in the last two years. No
1: kidding. Really? I did that twice. Oh, yeah. The last one I did didn't take. And I went from about a walking around five to a walking around four. And I just thought, is it really worth it if you're not going to hit me with the right right spot with the epidural? So I'm looking for anything. I'm going to get a copper fit. I'm going to start doing yoga. I, I don't know. I just maybe stay out of the gym and do yoga. Did-
2: Between you and I, I would do copper fit first because I tried yoga with my wife, and that was the most painful thing I've ever done. (laughs) She said said I didn't do it correctly. Um, But what I was doing was hurting, so I was trying everything I could to get out of it. Copper fit, you just just slap it on, pull it over, uh, Velcro it on, whichever you use, and go.
1: You got it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. All right. Brett Favre as a kid grew up Gulfport, Mississippi, little town of kiln. Tell me about a young Brett Favre growing up. Uh, and I want to hear just hear about your family. I know you had, uh, I think, three siblings. Parents were educators.
2: Yep. So I, I was born in Gulfport, Mississippi, which is right smack dab on the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I grew up about 20 minutes east, excuse me, west of there. Uh Gulfport, if you look at Mississippi on the map and you go down to the very bottom, there's a little sliver, uh, that's a three county, uh, coastal, um, area. And I grew up in the bottom left hand corner, which is Hancock County and, uh, probably as a crow flies five miles from the, from the beach, Gulf of Mexico. And, um, my, you're right. My dad was, uh, driver's ed teacher, and football and baseball coach. My mother was a special education teacher. I have an older brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. Um, and my dad, my dad's really, his his niche was baseball. He grew, grew up in Gulfport, which was a much bigger school than that I grew up in. And baseball was paramount uh, when he was growing up, especially at Gulfport. I'm sure you, there's probably a couple of names I could throw out that you would probably remember, recognize, or, uh, uh, refresh your memory. Uh, Marcus Lawton, Greg Hibbard, uh, yep. just to name it, uh, Matt Lawton, uh, left-handed hitter,
1: Greg Hibbard, p- left-handed, left-handed pitcher.
2: pitcher. All those guys played for my dad. Uh, another guy was a tremendous athlete w- w- was, uh, was a, ambidextrous pitcher, Ben Lee, was drafted high in the first round. I think he lasted a year. He was kind of a loose cannon. But he threw in the 90s both ways. All those guys I played with, me and my brother played with in the Legion ball that my dad was head coach of. And to be honest with you, my, my favorite sport was baseball. And if you would have asked me in high school at any point – what did I think I had a better chance of playing professional uh, baseball or football? I would have said baseball. Um, Yeah. Again, my dad coached football, but his forte was baseball. He played at Southern Miss and his uh, interesting fact, his teammate was Ray guy.
1: Really? The punter. The punter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was looking at your, uh, your football in high school. You're playing all over the place. You're QB, but you're, you know, you're a punter, you're a place kicker, you're a DB. Uh, but I was really interested in the baseball side because it said, you know, you as a kid, you played on varsity as an eighth grader. So you lettered five years, but I couldn't find out right. what position, what, what position were you baseball wise?
2: Um. Uh- Ideally, in a perfect world, I was a shortstop. Now, my eighth grade year, I started at third base. My old brother was, was a starting shortstop and he and I both pitched. We, we didn't have a very good baseball team, but my brother and I were actually, I, I would consider us good baseball players, really good baseball players. Um, but our high school was not very good, uh, w- which is really why I ended up playing. Um, and I started at third base. Later on in my my high school days, I, I played short. I pitched. I ca- I was a catcher. Um, played for my dad's Legion team. There were so many good football players. I mean baseball players that he stuck me out right field, um, which I didn't mind. So I you know I, I played a little bit of everything. I didn't. I don't think. I think the only position I never played was first base.
1: Wow. Yeah. You're, you're playing all over the yard, baseball wise, all over the yard, football wise. Interesting question. I, I, I got a chance when I retired, I coached uh, three of my boys and I got to do that, you know, at a travel ball situation and I kind of try to stay out of it. You know, they don't, they don't, I don't know. For me, it was more, the parents, you know, were the bigger problem than the kids, but I enjoyed that part. I never got coached by my dad. He was a coach of mine at the big league level in 1994 he's my bench coach for Cincinnati. And I went into the season thinking, Oh man, dad's going to be, you know, with me every day, watching my, all, everything I do ended up being one of the best, ended up being one of the best experiences I ever had. It, he went, he was so professional and it was that relationship. Once I got to the ballpark was player, coach you know i hung out with my boys as we do on the road and and the only the benefit was i got to have lunch with dad once in a while on an off day and it was really cool but as a kid i i I was i was really interested in your situation he was your high school football coach did you like that did you not like it you know the other kids oh that's that's brett's dad he's the coach
2: well there was a little bit of that but uh my dad yeah, I, I, I did enjoy it. Now, I didn't particularly like getting my, my butt chewed all the time, which I got I got a heavier dose than the other guys. And I think, you know, at the time, I didn't understand why. Later on in life, you know, you, you look at things a lot differently. And he treated me not favorable for obvious reasons. He didn't want anyone to say, well – and they said it. They never said it to him, but uh, – you know, Brett gets favoritism because that's his dad. When all they had to look at was we ran the wishbone and the wing tee offense, which is a run, run, run offense. If he wanted to showcase and show favoritism, he would have thrown the ball even though that wasn't his expertise. His his mindset, his offensive uh, uh, was running the ball, and that's what we did. So he did everything – Opposite of favoritism in my opinion. And he was, i tell you, he was tough. There was a, there was a lot of, uh, ride my ass and very little of, there was a lot of tough love and very little out of boys, put it that way.
1: Yeah. And I, I tried to be that way too. When I was, I, I don't know if I subconsciously did it on purpose when my kid was out there. Cause it's like, you know, my kid's playing short and it's like, Oh, that's Brett. But I, but I tried to be that way too. Like, no, you're not going to just play short because you're my son. You're going to play short if you deserve to play short, if not, but yeah. uh, no, pretty cool though. And you, and you mentioned the wishbone. That's right. I'm thinking I was looking up and, and you ended up going to Southern Miss. What was the recruiting like for you out of high school? Uh, and how'd you get to Southern Miss?
2: Well, recruiting was uh, was was very minimal at, at best. Uh, yeah, I got letters from all the relatively cl- close colleges: Alabama, LSU, Tulane, southwestern Louisiana, Southern Miss, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, uh, Auburn. All those I got letters from, well, you know, you get a, the first time you get a letter, you think, oh, my God, they want me. Soon, soon after you realize they give everybody that's that's even a hint of a, of a, a recruit a letter. So, you know, fast forward to going into my senior year, there was really. I, I I did a, I had a re- recruiting visit at Alabama. The head coach at the time was Ray Perkins, who was from Hattiesburg, um, and I don't think that that had any um, inkling to to the to the fact that I went there on a recruiting visit. I I think they genuinely were somewhat interested, but they never made an offer. And when it was all said and done. Even though I was recruited by Tulane pretty heavily, I never was offered. I, the only offer I got when it was all said and done was two, ma- I would say, major colleges, and, and one you may or may not have heard of. Southern Miss offered me and Delta State, which is a a school here in Mississippi. I think they're probably still D1, AA. Uh, I'm not even sure, but... Uh, That was the two offers. It was either that or junior college. And um, Southern Miss, I I can't remember the actual signing day, but let's just say February 12th was uh, official signing day. I got the offer from Southern Miss February 11th, the night before, um, only because a, a quarterback that they had a commitment from in Florida had backed out and chose to go elsewhere. So it opened up a spot for me. And, and the recruiting uh, coordinator, or coach who covered the Gulf Coast, was a guy by the name of Mark McHale, who was actually the line coach at Southern Miss at the time. And he and my dad hit it off from the get-go. I think he he came down to to, to recruit me or make a visit, so he could drink beer with my dad and they could tell stories. <laughs> and so I think I think when it was all said and done, Mark McHale stuck his neck out there maybe because he saw something that other scouts or recruiters didn't see, but he felt an obligation maybe to my father. And I don't know that for certain, but I, I feel like that was was partially the case. Um, and I remember when he called and said, hey, do you want to come play at Southern Miss? we got an opening. Uh, we're offering you now. I know it's the last second. But he said, I know you want to play quarterback. I believe you can play quarterback, but you, you have to come in with the mindset, I'll play whatever they put me at. And he said, let the chips fall where they may. And, and it, if you're destined to be the quarterback, then it'll work out. And, and he, uh, he was right.
1: While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone podcast. Dan?
0: Thanks, Boone. College basketball fans, join the action on the court during the biggest tournament of the year with DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn your team's victory into your own big win. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. It's that simple. If they win, you win. Everyone wins. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still join the College Hoops action with DraftKings Pools. Everyone can play free pools all March long for a shot at a share of over $250,000 in prizes. Simply join a pool and answer questions like, who will make it to the next round, and who will hit the most three-pointers, then track your results. Simply download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E, bet $5 on any college hoops team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If they win, you win. With promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E, this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus, restrictions apply. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling, and Referral services can be accessed by calling one 800 Gambler one 1-800-426-2537, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-NEXT-STEP, Arizona, 1-800-522-4700, Colorado, New Hampshire, 888-789-7777, visit HTTP. Colon forward slash forward slash ccpg.org slash chat Connecticut 1 800 bets off Iowa 1 770 stop 7867 Louisiana 877 8 H O P E N Y text H O P E N Y 467 369 New York visit OPGR.org Oregon call text in Tennessee redline 1 800 889 9789 Tennessee or 1 888 532-3500-Virginia, 21+, 18+, plus, plus New Hampshire, Wyoming, physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See HTTP colon forward slash forward
1: slash draftkings.com slash sportsbook for details. And now back to my interview with Brett Farb. Yeah. Pretty awesome story. You go to Southern Miss as a freshman and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're something once it gets past fifth string for me, I quit count, but it said like you're seventh string quarterback. Next thing you know, game three, you're starting and you end up playing 10 games that year. Uh, you end up starting a third game against Tulane. And, and the rest is kind of history as far as your college career goes. You become the number one guy. Pretty quick pretty quick. Uh, yeah, I say,
2: tr- you know, transformation right, from seventh
1: I was, string to starting.
2: When, when I got there, no one knew who I was. No one cared who I was. And, I, you know, I, I don't know how other kids are, but someone similar in my situation to my situation may have, you know – Uh, looked at it negatively or, uh, you know, I don't know what the word exactly I'm trying to use, maybe rebelled against the situation. And um, I look at it as an opportunity. Now I've said this to so many people throughout my years. One of the things that have served me well early in my NFL career, definitely early in my college career was being naive, not knowing the odds, not caring what the odds were. All I cared about was I'm on the team and all I need is a shot. That's all I need. And, and I, you know, yeah, I wanted it sooner rather than later. Who does not But I, I, I bought my time and, and where I really made, I think where I really made my mark, where eyebrows were raised was, uh, and, and again, I looked at it as a, a positive. Uh, even though I was thrown on the scout team to give a look to the opposing for our de- starting defense to see, you know, okay, we're, we're playing two lane. Uh Terrence Jones is a quarterback. He He's very mobile. He's a great thrower. So they wanted me to move around. They wanted me to make stuff happen. They wanted me to give them their best shot. And I did that. Uh, and it was more just drawing stuff up in the dirt, running around, scrambling around. Throwing. Now, one thing I knew I could do better than anyone I felt like in the world was out-throw I, I I would never say I could out-read any quarterback when it comes to defenses, fronts, recognizing coverages, uh, even knowing the, the ins and outs and the nuances and uh, the the little changes and stuff within my offense. I was not the best at that, but I could out throw anyone. I could make any throw, and and that's what I did. and And a guy got hurt, another guy got moved to a different position, and slowly but surely, I inched my way up the ladder, sort of by fault, default, sort of by making hay when when I had to make hay, and uh, and eventually, I got my shot. I came in against Tulane. Uh, we were down very similar to my my professionals uh, really my, my getting my foot in the door when I came in against Cincinnati against Green Bay. We were down seventeen to three. Same thing against Tulane. We were down seventeen to three. We couldn't piss a drop. They put me in. I ran around like a chicken with my head cut off. I, I scrambled when I didn't need to scramble. I took nine step drops when I was supposed to take a three-step drop. But lo and behold, I made, I, made it, I made it happen. And we came back and won both of those games in a very similar fashion. And the rest is history.
1: That's pretty awesome. And you say being naive, and I'm a firm believer in that. You know, I've, uh, especially in the baseball arena, it's, you know, I've been around it my whole life. And in a few years, I worked for the Oakland A's and, and I worked with the minor leaguers. And that guy that came into camp with no clue but knew he was good and could look me in the eyes and, and almost tell me how good he was. I want 10 of those guys and, and I don't care how they penciled yeah. out, you know, on the charts guys that were truly believed in themselves. It, and, and to this day, I truly, if you, if you truly believe you are great, you are great. You know, I don't want that six, four guy that can run like the wind and has got a cannon of an arm and he's got unbelievable bat speed and says all the right things. But when he's by himself, he's unsure. You know, those guys, those yeah. guys are at a disadvantage. I want that young, hungry kid that's got no clue what's going to happen to them at the highest level. They're going to get their. They're going to get, you know, their butts handed to them, but they're going to get off the get off the ground and come back fighting. I love it. You know, I, I was a little bit of that coming up, man. I'd, I'd run around anybody that wants to hear about how great I am. I'm going to tell you, and, and, you know, as we get older and we mature and we get humbled a little bit, we look back at those times and laugh and go, man, did I not have a clue what was about to hit me? But you're right, man. It, having that, that naivety is sometimes a weapon and, and it's a powerful one.
2: Yeah. I, 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 give you a flip side example. You know, I played 20 years in the national football league and, and obviously I saw several generations of players come and go and coaches, and, You know, I got to a point where the latter part of my career, most of the coaches that were on the staff, I was older then. When I was with the Jets, the head coach was six years younger than me. My offense <laughs> coordinator was five years younger than me, and then my quarterback coach was seven years younger than me. Um, so, that being said, when when I when I got my my first start in 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 the National Football League, I came in against Cincinnati. We it was my second year. It was the third game of the season. We came back. We won. I started the next week against uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, who were, were 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 awesome then. And we, we beat them pretty soundly. And uh, we ended up, I think, winning nine games, losing uh, seven, almost made the playoffs. But I, I can't remember a time. Mike Holmgren was my coach my first six years. And awesome coach. Rode my ass and I deserved every bit of it. He he challenged me to to really sink my 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 mind into you know what defenses are doing, how they are attacking you. Uh, and I'll be honest with you. I I tried but you know I, and I would tell Mike and I have he and I have swapped stories many a times since that. Um, you know that that part of my career but I, I'll be honest with you, it, it never sunk in I, as much as I tried. And, and quite frankly, I didn't care. I just said, hey, third and 25, I know a check down is probably the smart move and, 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 you know, live for another day. But I'm going to hose one 25 yards down the field in, in triple coverage and just because I can. The latter part of my career, I, I played more careful uh tried to play a lot less uh careless understood the game tremendously well much different than I did early in my career but I looked at things like a like like a coach would look at it and what I mean by that was and I would say year 15 or give or take 13 14 15 is when it really started when I when I would really look at the you know the opposing team. We we play a game on Sunday, and the next day we watch that film, and then we're we're beyond that. We're on to the next team. I would sink my my you know my mind into it and start studying right away, and I would right away start judging if we had a shot to win or lose. You know, I'd say, man, we don't really stand a chance against this team. You know, they stack up against us very well. I I looked at things and thought about things that early in my career. I wouldn't have gave. I wouldn't have even given it a first thought. I, we played the Dallas Cowboys and got beat out of the playoffs. I think my first four years in the playoffs, we ended our our season at Dallas, and they went on and won the Super Bowl. And every every time I played them, I knew for a fact we could beat them, and would have beat them, and should have beat them, and would give them my best. Whereas the latter part of my career going into games like that or similar games, whether it be regular season or post-season, and I would look at it like a coach. A coach is going to tell you one thing, and he's going to think of something totally different. He's going to get in front of the team and say, men, we can kick their ass. you got to believe it. Meanwhile, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, we don't stand a chance.
1: <laughs> That's right. we got now, no you chance. Would- yeah.
2: And and I, I that's what happened to me in the latter part of my career, and I fought those demons to you know to, to I constantly reminded myself, rem, remember when you were naive and didn't know and didn't care. Quite frankly, even if you knew for a fact that the odds were certainly against you, you didn't care, and I didn't. And it served me well, and and so, you know, I played long enough where my mindset completely was brainwashed and, and flipped to the other side.
1: And and uh, maybe I'll let you tell it later, but I, I, I watched an interest, interesting clip of you and you tell that story about the nickel V defense and the dime defense yeah. and Ty, Ty Detmer. I thought that was funny, um, but, but that just, set your mind, your mindset at that particular time in your career is: I don't care. My job is to get this first down and to score more than they score. And so that really didn't matter in your game, but I thought it was a cool story. No, it, it didn't matter. What, what mattered to me was winning.
2: Right. And, and whatever it took, however ugly or how pretty it was. didn't, I didn't give a damn all I wanted and, and, and uh, to be honest with you, there was numerous times where Mike Holmgren would call me into his office, and he he it's and it's funny he called me two things, and it depended on what mood he was in. He never called me Brett. he called me either Billy Bob, which was not good, or John Wayne. So if he said, "Hey, John Wayne, I need to see you in my office, then it was it, it, he was going to be critical, maybe, but in a good way, and what I mean by that was you know, you you talked about it didn't matter. All I all I cared about was getting the first down or winning the game, and that was true. So, like it would be third and fifteen, and I would scramble, and I would be three yards down the field. So I'm relatively give or take twelve yards from the first down, and and they're closing in on me. Rather than side and live for another day, I would take them on head head on, just try to run over them, just brute strength. And get up and t- and talk smack to him like that's all you got. Well, when he would call me in his office, hey John Wayne, I need to see you in my office. Look, it, you know I appreciate your toughness. I I appreciate you. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate your toughness. I really appreciate your eagerness to win and do anything you possibly can for the team. I mean that's what every coach dreams of. But good God, please be smarter. And if you try to run over the next guy, fifteen yards short of the first down, I'm going to fine you five thousand dollars. And I said,
1: "Consider it done, Mike." <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that's that's the mindset, and I know that mindset because in at a point in my life, a point in my career, I had that mindset. I didn't. I had blinders on. You know, I had a, you had Holmgren. I had Lou Pinella. man. And he was a thorn in my side kid, young kid, you're swinging too hard. This and that Lou, He'd just get out of my way. And we'd have drop, you know, drag out fights in his office, not physical, but you know what I'm talking about, but you're right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we get into certain mindsets through certain times of our career. It's just what it is. And it makes us kind of who we are.
2: Yeah. You know, and that's, I guess my point in all of it is, I, you know, I still did some really good things the latter part of my career, but I felt like I left a lot on the on the table because of my mindset. And and you know, not that I was going to run over people in year eighteen, I, I, not that, but just letting the game you know play out. Do what you do. Don't worry about if the tight end studied or if he if he knows what route to run in this situation or the left tackle if he's going to protect me. Uh, against a certain guy this week you know you can't you, you, that's something you can't control and early in my career the things i couldn't control i could give to you you know what about uh i i just i if they don't protect i'll make something happen if they don't run the right route i'll go to the next guy or i'll scramble and make something happen rather than worrying about is such and such going to be playing up to par this week uh, I can't control that, and and I thought that the latter part of my career.
1: You go back to Southern Miss, you get that you know seventh seven string to starter by your junior year. You end up beating Florida State, which for for Southern Miss to to beat Florida State that's a big deal. Is that kind of the year coming out where everybody kind of knew? All right, took took notice of Brett Favre in that in that in that game. I think you guys went five and six that year, but you ended up beating Florida State.
2: Yeah, we opened the season in Jacksonville, it was a neutral site. It was supposed to be a home game for us. Jacks, uh, Florida State obviously wanted to, to schedule it somewhere close to them, you know, for for attendance and and so on and so forth. We were really a good team. the 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 best team we had in my four years was that year, and we went five and six. But we. We legitimately beat them up and down the field. Now, it went down to the basically the last play. But we outplayed them. And, and they didn't play bad, but we played exceptionally well. And, and the, I think the next three games, we played good teams, not for, Florida State teams. We played Mississippi State, which is was a big rival game. We lost by a last-second field goal. The following week, we played Virginia Tech, no slouch. We lost on the last second field goal, and then we played southwestern Louisiana, which is now University of Lafayette, and we lost to them on the last second field goal. Um, And, um, you know, the rest is history. But, yeah, I think our coming out or my coming out, like, okay, who is this guy, was Florida State. Um, That was our signature win up to that point. My senior year, we beat Alabama and Auburn, and should have beat Georgia. Uh, we missed a field goal at the end of the game, a chip shot field goal. Uh, so that was that was also who who can say they beat Alabama and Auburn in the same year and almost beat Georgia. Um, and we were we were really good that year too. But I would say the Florida State game kind of put us in a different stratosphere, even though See, we went five and six.
1: Senior year, uh, nasty car accident. Eight weeks later, you, you would mentioned earlier, you beat Alabama. Your brother was, a, was, was somebody who helped you get out of the car. Big, big turning point in your life. Make you kind of a, uh, uh, wow moment.
2: Uh, yes, definitely. I had everything going for me at the time. I was a Heisman candidate, Um uh, you know, I was, a, I was going to be a true senior. Um, I was in the best shape. I remember, I don't remember a lot. Uh, if if you ask me, hey, you remember that time in 1997 we played such and such? More than likely I'm not going to remember. it. But I remember specifically the day I had the car wreck. We had a running test uh, here on campus at Southern Miss. And it was a, and I was not a distance runner at all, but. They had a mile-and-a-half running test, and I don't know if you've been to Hattiesburg or Mississippi in July or August, and I don't recommend you come. It's a hot mammy-jammy and, and, and humid. But I ran, uh, I think it was like a 9.36 uh, mile-and-a-half, which was smoking. Now, I've never done that since, nor do I care to, but I was 2.36 Uh, i was in the best shape of my life i was ready to go i was ready to face my senior year and lo and behold i have a car wreck later that afternoon and um it was an aha moment when when i came to i was in the hospital there was people around they looked concerned i didn't know what was going on um when 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 the dust sort of settled and i the reality set in you know, the doctors and at the time the car wreck was July fourteenth. I would say about July thirtieth was training camp was scheduled to start. Well the doctors would come in and they would you know, hey you fractured a vertebrae in your back, you got and I had terrible bruises. My side was beat to a pulp. Um my right side it was it was just yellow and it looked like i had jaundice and i had stitches all over me but what they didn't know at the time was that the internal injuries were so severe that i'd lost 36 inches of my intestines um, and that didn't come to fruition until probably a week and a half after i was admitted to the hospital the, which was the day of the the car wreck I got out of the hospital about a week after I had first went in. I had zero appetite, which was unusual. I shriveled up to, to a, probably 205 at the time and started trying to get myself back in order when the stomach pains really hit me like nothing I've ever felt before or since it was like I was being stabbed in the gut with an ice pick. And I don't know what that feels like, but it can feel good. I had the worst pains and I was rushed back into the hospital, which was probably five days after I'd left the hospital initially and was admitted back in, they ran, I was admitted into the emergency room, they ran tests and they said, we got to do emergency surgery, 36 inches of the intestines has died. So it was sort of a double whammy when I got out the first time, I, even though I didn't feel great, I felt like the, I was, that was behind me. Now it was a matter of recovering and, and rehabbing. And I, you know, there's a lot to be said for being young. I was 19 years old. I was in a prime of my life. So I was going to bounce back quickly. And lo and behold, I have to go back in and I have to have major surgery. And I remember the doctor, a guy by the name of George McGee, um, uh, coming in before the surgery and he said, look, I'm going to make as small as incision as possible. I don't, I don't expect you're going to play this year. So just get that out of your mind, but I'm going to, I'm going to cut you as, as, le- as the least invasive I can, but we got to get those intestines out and you're going to be fine, but you got a long road ahead of you. So when I, I had the surgery, Came to my family was around the, the the bed. My head coach at the time, Curly Hallman, great guy. They were all, you know, trying to be upbeat and and you know, no one was saying, "Hey, you still can play this year. You still, I mean, just, you know, do all you can. You can still play." Everyone said, "Hey, good thing you got a red shirt year." And I, my mindset. I never said anything to him, but I said, "The hell with that! I'm not redshirting. Um, I'm playing." And I stayed in the hospital to till August eighth. Was let let out then. Saw sunlight for the first time in probably eight days. Was shriveled up to one ninety three, and started chipping away at, I mean, I'm telling you, it was slow going. It was painful. Um, but I chipped away and would, would be on the sidelines jogging sprints, so on and so forth. And, and uh, lo and behold, I ended up starting against Alabama September 8th. Um, and, you know, statistically speaking, it was just an okay year. In fact, we beat Alabama in that game and I think I was like 14 for 26 or something like that for 120 yards and a touchdown. Modest stats at best. But overwhelmingly, it was a successful year in the fact that I proved that I was I was tough, which which matters in football. I proved that I could win, which matters a great deal in football. And those are the intangibles that a lot of times gets overlooked. So in some ways I lost, in other ways I I won.
1: Get through your senior year, uh, get ready for the draft. At that particular time, what are you hearing? Where do you think you're being picked? Football. It's always interesting to me to talk to the football guys because the football and baseball. It's a lot different. Baseball is trying to catch up to the NFL draft. You know they're making a big display of it now, but but I don't think you're ever going to be able to replace that draft day. You know those combines. MLB. There's no combine. It's just kind of you're thrown on a sheet and who knows. You'll get a phone call. What are you hearing going into that draft? That that ninety one draft.
2: Well, I was hearing good things. The problem was after after the regular season of of uh, my senior year you know the, and i think there's still two after uh season bowl games which is the senior bowl and the east-west shrine game and there may be more now but those were the only two that and that was kind of the best of the best an all-star game It's sort of a combine in itself but with a game i was invited to play in both of those i played in both I played in the Senior Bowl. did did fine. I didn't hurt myself during the week of practice. probably helped myself. went the the East-West Shrine Game out at Stanford, played in it, and and suffered the worst injury of my career on the football field. and and most people don't know that. I I threw a pass to the left. was got knocked down. I was on my hands and knees, basically just watching the play unfold. In the, the right tackle in the defensive end tripped and fell on my backside and jammed my right hip uh, again sort of like my stomach pain the the most piercing pain i've ever felt in football uh, on the field and it just jammed my my hip sockets tremendously and i was uh, diagnosed with vascular necrosis, like two weeks later. Well, hell, I never heard of a vascular necrosis. Didn't I? Mean I never heard the term. Knew nothing about it, and didn't. Quite frankly, didn't investigate it. You know, there was no Google then. I didn't. I didn't go look up medical books and see what it was. They, the doctors that diagnosed me with it, said. You know, basically what they said to me, and it, again, it, that was at a time in my life, and I I heard you, but I didn't hear you. They said, you know, and there, there was no one to point to uh, as an example. Later on, several years down the road, Bo Jackson has a, a similar injury and has a vascular necrosis, but he has to have a hip replacement right away. So there was kind of a measuring stick there. but But, but prior to that, when I was diagnosed with it, there was some chatter that he won't make it three years. Uh, now I see why vascular necrosis basically is a socket, uh, uh, a joint that dies because of a lack of blood supply for, for lack of a better medical term. And that joint would need replacement. The most common is a hip. Uh, so a lot of teams failed me on, on the physical and there were really three teams that were in the hunt for a quarterback early. The Raiders, the Seahawks, and the Falcons. There were some other interests that I got from other teams, came in, worked me out. I was never able to run a 40. I, I could throw. I could drop back a little bit, but I, I was still kind of mending my, my hip as I went. I went to the combine. I didn't run. I threw. Uh, lifted whatever weights I needed to lift, but I but I didn't do shuttle drills or things of that nature. I couldn't. But there was three teams that really showed a lot of interest, and and it was the three teams I mentioned. They came back for a workout. They came back for a, for a meeting. They you know they 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 constantly were phone calls, asking questions. Hey, we didn't ask you this. You know what about this or what about that. Um, we want to come in and see you throw again. Um, we want to come in and ask you football questions. So those three really, I knew were in the hunt for a quarterback and, and I was a person of interest to, them. uh, when it was all said and done, all three teams drafted a quarterback early, the first quarterback that went and you'll know the, the name, Mark McGuire's brother, Dan McGuire. Yep. Was the first quarterback taken, and he went to the Seattle Seahawks, like pick fourteen, give or take. A Couple of picks later, the the Raiders took Todd Marinovich. I'm sure you remember him.
1: The, he you know, was the, a uh, he name was name. in my dorm at SC. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that uh, was at, at Todd so and, was, and I like, were at uh, SC at the, the same Raiders. time. Yeah, you were the third QB and taken so, that year.
2: I was a third QB taken. I was taken by Atlanta. And I, I think if you asked me a week out, two weeks out of the, from the draft, what did your gut tell you? You're going where do you think you're going to go? I would have said Atlanta and my, and my gut would have, they had two picks in the first round that year. They had the third pick and like the 12th or 13th pick. Um, I had got the impression they were going to take me with the second first round pick. Which would have been, you know, mid twelve, thirteen, fourteen pick. Yeah, so you know, when I think about that draft and, and my mindset, we had a little party at our house. I didn't go to New York. Um, I, I, I thought there was a chance I could go in the first round, which obviously is a big honor. Um, but I I I I really felt like if I didn't go in the first round, I would definitely go in the second round because Atlanta was kind of stacked with early picks. Um I'll be honest with you I didn't have a preference. You know, I didn't say like some of these guys do, I didn't say I, I don't want to go to Denver, I don't want to go to Tampa Bay, I don't want to go to Atlanta. I just wanted to go somewhere. And I wanted to go where I could uh, where I felt like I could play the quickest. And and I, quite frankly, I didn't know where that was really. You, I mean you never really know. the the quarterbacks that generally go in the first round play sooner rather than later compared to the other guys. But I didn't, I really didn't care. I just said, I want a shot much. Like I said, you know, my freshman year in in college or my first year in green Bay, I just wanted a shot. And so when I was drafted by Atlanta, uh, you know, it was a second round. I wasn't crying over spilled milk. I was excited about the opportunity. Um, and got on plane the following day, went to a mini camp and the rest was history.
1: So you go second round with the, with the Falcons and uh, this once again, just me doing my research before Glanville and you didn't click accurate. Uh, Very accurate.
2: Uh, (laughs) It was more Uh, one-sided, you know, uh, he, He never gave the impression that he was glad I was on the team. And I, as time went by, I rebelled to that point that the hell with him, the hell with this, you know, I, I treated my situation the wrong way. I'm certainly not saying that that's the way to treat it, but I gained 26 pounds. I I, I lived off of beer and hot wings and uh, I just rode the wave hoping that I, I would ever – if I – even putting on the weight and kind of, you know, going dark, for lack of a better term, I still felt like, hey, if I get a shot, I'll show them. But I don't think that that shot's going to come anytime soon, which was true. But, I, you know, I never got the exact answer of why Jerry from day one treated me like the redheaded stepchild. But my, my best guess is, and uh, Ken Harrock was a GM. Ken Harrock was a great guy. His son, Sean, became a scout in Green Bay, and we talked about it a lot of times. We'd laugh about my situation in Atlanta and how Jerry treated me. And Sean think, seems to think that Jerry wanted to draft a different guy, not a quarterback, but with that pick, he felt like his needs were, were better suited somewhere else. And Ken overrode, you know, Jerry's uh, request and drafted a quarterback. So he was going to make life miserable not only on Ken, but on his quarterback that he drafted, and, you know, and and that's what he did. So that, that makes probably the most sense to me of why he, he rode me like he did.
1: After that first year, you they work out a trade with the Packers, and I think a guy that's was a pretty big part of your life, Ron Wolf, trades for you. Uh, once again, you alluded to it earlier with the hip physical doesn't go well. Wolf says no, we're taking Favre. Obviously, this guy believes in you big time, and and he wants to give you that shot. He's dying to get you in Green Bay, and uh, you're in Green Bay. Ninety two starts. Uh, you're not the starter. I think once again, just like college, game three, you come in you, <laughs> and you were talking about I'm sure you get sick of talking about that first, you know, that first pass you ever had. You, you caught it. Yeah. Favre caught it himself. You've heard it a million times, but I didn't know you had four fumbles and you end up coming back and beating the Bengals.
2: Yeah. I mean, I did everything I could to not win. <laughs> And you won.
1: And you won. Uh, and the rest, the rest of your won. career is absolute history. You throw for thirty-two hundred yards that year, and you go to a Pro Bowl. And uh, it's kind of that start in in Green Bay. But I don't know that when you got there, correct me if I'm wrong. It wasn't the Green Bay that we know of of, of the great Brett Favre years, and then to follow Rodgers' years. It was it was a little bit of different culture in Green Bay, if that's accurate, starting but- in '92. And you kind well, of flipped it, it, that around, it, it,
2: yeah. It yeah, it was. It, was, it had been twenty five years since the Packers had made the playoffs, and that was going back. I mean, ninety two. Go back twenty five years. I mean, we're talking about players like Bart Starr. Uh, you, you know, like Lynn Dickey hadn't even gotten there yet. You know, I mean, it had been a long time since they had had any success. I mean, think about that. Twenty five years since they had been in the playoffs. Now we think of the Packers being a playoff or a Super Bowl cont- every year, which every they are. Year. Yep. So wh- when I when I got there, the media asked me, you know, hey, are you aware the Packers haven't made the playoffs in 25 years? And you know, I I haven't seen any clips of my initial interviews, but I probably said something to the effect, no, but that's going to change. Yeah. Uh, little did I know it changed and changed in a hurry. And I think, you know, the guy that is, is 100% responsible for that change is Ron Wolf. Now he's going to deflect all that and point it towards me or, or Mike Holmgren or whoever, but he assembled a cast that I don't want to say was misfits, but what me in particular Again, he he traded a first-round pick for a guy who was drafted in the second round. I mean, this is this is crazy stuff. Who who did everything he could to get cut from a, his previous team, put on 26 pounds, not good pounds, might I add, and you're going to trade a first-round pick for him? He didn't even play a snap, and you're going to trade a first-round pick for him? Are you crazy? But. You know, and I thought, I thought a lot of my game. I, I thought I could play. I was, I, I wouldn't call myself cocky. I was confident, but I don't, I think what I thought of myself was still less than what Ron Wolf thought of me and what I could accomplish, uh, which says a lot for, you know, to have, have that expertise that he had, that mindset, that, that eye for talent. Uh, and I'm, I'm forever thankful and grateful for
1: him. Two things: at the start of your career. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you about is how big of a difference Reggie White coming there in '93 make. How did that change things? And the second thing, and the most impressive thing to me, and you know playing my game for a long time and watching Cal Ripken and what he accomplished, for you to play 297 straight. You know, we all think when we're young. I remember having arguments with one of my managers, Davey Johnson, because he said, "When do you want a day off, Boone?" And I'd say, "I never want a day off." He goes, "You want to be like Cal Ripken?" I said, "Yes, I'm the next Cal Ripken." I remember about a year later, he came to me. I was, I was, I was struggling. You know, I was probably one for my last twenty. We're in Colorado, and he comes to me, he looks at me, he goes, "Hey, Cal Junior, you ready for a day off?" I said, I said, no, I could, you know, I had to, I had, I couldn't admit that I did. And he ended up giving me a day off, but I look at what you did. 297 people don't understand. It's not the fact that you just go out there every week, you know, with, with little, but that means you didn't get hurt, hurt to the point where you can't walk in the NFL. At that quarterback position, it's, it's pretty damn remarkable. I don't know how it translates into baseball. Just because you guys play once a week, we play, you know, 162. But it's got to be right up there. It's, it's pretty amazing. Sorry, I was a little long-winded. I just had those two.
2: No, no, you're absolutely right. I think the one thing that I'm most proud of, of all the things I've accomplished, and I think the repercussions are, are starting to take effect, unfortunately, but it is what it is was the fact that I played for as long as I did and was as durable. But more than, more importantly, you know, I played well enough that they didn't bench me. You know, you would think at some point you would go, you know, and I, I would always use this as an analogy. And, and I said, you can go 0 for 5 three or four nights in a row in baseball, and, and you're in a slump, and he'll hit its way out of it. You go 0, 0 for 5 in, in football, the equivalent of – of that five weeks in a row going 0 for 5, they're going to bench your ass. Yep. You know, you don't, have, you don't have 162 games to fight your way out of it. And I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of the fact that not only did I play every game, but I was good enough consistently enough, not always, but enough that they said I'd rather have him in there and and we don't have to worry about it. He's gonna he's gonna line up and play week in and week out. And I did. And uh, you know the the other part of that that uh, is Reggie White. Reggie White. We would have been good without Reggie White, but we wouldn't have won a Super Bowl without him. Not not as soon as we did. Had Mike stayed there, and Mike wouldn't have left. Had we not won a Super Bowl, Mike wouldn't have left. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have been the hot t- uh, ticket, you know. So winning kind of put us in a different, on a different level, where players are attractive to other teams and coaches are attractive. But the, but the reason we won the Super Bowl and, and won it when we did was the addition of Reggie White. Reggie just gave street cred and legitimate, legitimate like just they're for real you know their defense now i mean we were scoring a lot of points and we we were prolific offensively but we were a little inconsistent defensively we needed that hammer uh to to you know to solidify our defense And when we got reggie it just instantly added 14 points to the you know to the score and we haven't even kicked off yet so you know the the addition of Reggie definitely really kickstarted our our Super Bowl run, and I think had Mike Holmgren stayed several more years, or you know stayed t- together with me, I think we had had several other Super Bowl runs. It wasn't the same after Reggie left and after Mike left. No question.
1: Get to ninety five uh another unbelievable feat you, you it's one of three mvps you won in a row 95 96 97. you go 11 and 5 that 95 year you lead the league in yards 4400 you end up losing to the cow, cowboys in, in the playoffs uh but 96 comes and um, that's your year it's you're 13 and three you throw for 3800 yards you're the mvp of the league again uh, you get to go to your first Super Bowl. You end up beating the Patriots and drew Bledsoe. So, you know, with with the career you've had, Brett, and it's it, unbelievable. It still had to be a pretty special. That first Super Bowl you get to go to with that, le- that week leading up to it. You know, it's the World Series is one thing. We play seven games That Super Bowl. It's all comes down to one day. Take me through that first Super Bowl for you. Yeah,
2: well, it was a magical year, but you know, the 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 start of that year or the the summer right before the start of training camp I spent 75 days in in drug rehab in Topeka, Kansas for pain pill addiction. You know, before pain pill addiction was cool. And I, I I'm not saying that it's cool, but you know what I mean. Just mm-hmm. referring to how how uh how loosely we throw around opiate addiction today. I was I was trying to, to manage my game, my life. My wife and I got married. We'd been together since my eighth grade year in, in grade school. And, uh, meanwhile, I was married to, uh, Vicemin and had still won two MVPs and would soon win my third MVP. But here I go to, I have to go to drug rehab. Was supposed to be 28 days, but I fought the system and rebelled and told them they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I, you know, I I was wrong, and that's why I stayed 75 days. I, I couldn't go out, or if I walked out, I I would have walked out of my team because I was it was mandatory. I went into to the treatment program, the league. It's got a mandated uh, program, and uh, so I was kind of pissed at the whole system. But I, I used that time to get in the best shape I could get in in my life. Uh, I came out, and to this day, I haven't taken a pain pill since, but I was ready. Man, I was, when I got out and came in uh, that initial press conference, uh, I, I've, I've looked and, and heard uh, bits and pieces from that, that press conference. And boy, was I confident and, and downright cocky, to be honest with you. But I knew. I was ready to play. If there was every year I was ready to play. I had a clear mind for once and for the first time in my in my career, probably for for the previous three or four years. And um, I said, we're going. You know, and I knew it was in New Orleans. I knew that that was 50 miles from where I grew up. Um, and, and in some respects, that was a good thing. In others, it was a bad thing because everybody wants to come over. And you, the stress of – Getting tickets and all that stuff, you know. As we, as we our season progressed, you know, we knew we were positioning ourselves for 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 this Super Bowl, which we were. We were winning. We were winning games, uh, um, rather easily, and, and it looked like Dallas was on their on the downside, which they were, and uh, we end up, you know, winning the conference championship. And here we go. And that, le- that week leading up to, you know, the, the, the big game is, uh, it, it's interesting. You sit in your room, you watch all the highlights of previous Super Bowls. You go, man, I can't believe it. it it's surreal. Uh, you, you pinch yourself, but it doesn't, doesn't resonate that we are really going to play in this Super Bowl. I'm going to be on the TV the next year for the next guy to watch highlights of me. Uh, you know, and to me, I was all about sports, whether it was baseball or football. And I knew every player that played before me, uh, for all the teams, I knew the head coaches, I, all that stuff I knew. So I was, I was all about football. And so to be in that game, I knew much like regular season when you when you looked at your the, the schedule when it comes out and you see that you had three Monday night games you right away you knew that you were somebody and you had deserved and, and were honored to be slated to play on Monday night football so much the, much the same with the Super Bowl like this is the fruits and the rewards of all the hard work and and sweat and blood and crying and laughing that you put in during the season, and I just really soaked it in.
1: It's pretty awesome. And uh, you guys ended up be- like I said, beating the Patriots, ninety-seven MVP for the third year in a row. Um, you end up losing that Super Bowl to the Elway and the Broncos, and it's kind of man that that time in football. That's 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 the nineties. That's what I'm, you know, really tuned into that NFL. I'm a I'm a current player at the time, but that was kind of the heyday. It was Favre and and Steve Young and Aikman and Elway and Brady's coming on the scene. That's a pretty, pretty awesome time as far as quarterbacks in the history of NFL.
2: Yeah, you know, none of us were, were, were as prolific as they are today because we just we didn't throw the ball as much. You know, now it's a wide open spread. You know, you pretty much draft a guy and bring his offense with him into the pro, you know, the pro game. Then it was different, you know. Um, And there were great matchups, and you're right, you know. And I'll be honest with you, everyone had Denver as a big underdog, but we, I'll be honest with you, we did not overlook them. We got outplayed. They were better than everyone, everyone but us gave them credit for. They were a very sound football team, and it was probably John Elway's worst-played Super Bowl, uh, but yet his first win in the Super Bowl because they were just so good all around. So, you know, I I was certainly disappointed when we lost that game, but I I thought I played as well as I could play and did all I could. I felt like our team – you know, there was a few things we all wish we could have done better, but all in all, you know, I, as disappointed as I was, I said, hey, they're a good football team. And they proved that by going back and winning again the next year. And that's hard to repeat, as you know. It's hard to just go back, better yet, repeat and win.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had Andre Reed and Thurman Thomas on, on the podcast, and I talked to them about it, you know, and I said – what about the four in a row? And they said, we've been hearing about that for 30 years. They said, but all said and done, if I had to go do it again, I'll take going to four in a row and losing four in a row. I, I didn't get to go to, to, I got to go to one world series. I got whooped Yankees kicked our ass, but I could, you know, I can, I, I, I have an appreciation for it now. You know, when, when I watch any sport at the highest level, the NFL, major league baseball to, to see at the end of that game, when you're the world champion, I, I appreciate that because I know how hard it is and how many great, great players in all sports never get that opportunity to host that trophy. And it's a pretty, pretty darn special thing.
2: Yeah. Marino, as great as he was, he went his first year and never went back. You know? Yeah. Uh, There's, there's a, there's a perfect example of how hard it is. As prolific as he was, especially early, he never went back. And Griffey, everyone, Griffey. I'm sure, including him, would would say, if I'm a bet man, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna bet the farm that he's gonna go back at least once, and never
1: did. Ken Griffey Jr. never got to a World Series. Best player I've ever played with. There's a lot of examples of that. Yeah, you know, great players
2: never going.
1: Yeah, unbelievable. Ah. Uh, 98, you're a pro bowler again, lead the league in, in passing yards of 4,200. 99, and, and it seems to be a, a turning point that, that you think in the Green Bay Packers. I think that's when Ray Rhodes takes over for, for Holmgren. You, you continue to have some great years. Uh, for, you throw for 4,000 yards, 3,800, 3, you throw for, for that. And that's, that's another thing. 18 years in a row, you threw for over 3,000 yards. We had Warren Moon on recently. I was looking at his numbers. And before I went into Warren's career, I didn't realize how great he was, you know, starting in the CFL and all those years that he had over there. But looking at your numbers, it's like every year is 3,000, 3,800, 4,042. And you didn't miss a beat until your final year. I want to get to the 03 season. You're a pro bowler. You guys go 10 and 6. And uh had to be a very tough time in your life, but what an unbelievable Monday night game. Your father passes away. And uh take me through that Monday night football game where you have an unbelievable, especially first half. You end up beating Oakland 41 to 7. Was it kind of a surreal moment for you?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I've told this to so many people, and and uh, um, and, it, and it's true. There was no question whether or not I would play in that game, and and you know, there was speculation that I I wouldn't, Woody or Woody would, would, would I or would I not play in the game uh, was was the big question. Well, internally, I was I was gonna I was gonna play uh, because that's what my dad would want him, wanted me to do. You know, he'd have said, I don't give a damn. You're playing. I don't care how hurt you are well, you're playing. The team is counting on you. I could hear him, you know, as if he were right there, because that's exactly what he would have said. And that's what he would have wanted me to do. That's what, who we were. You know, we were, uh, you know, coach and son, coach and son. There was very little dad and son. It was coach and son. And I, and that was okay. So I knew I was going to play. Um, the question was, to me, in the heart, it was it was a hard one. Could I play? And, and to, you know, I, I felt like we could win the game. But And I didn't say this to anyone uh, other than my wife, who flew out late that night. Uh, it was a Monday night game. We got there Saturday. I found out Saturday evening or afternoon my dad passed away. My wife flew out late that night. It was right around Christmas. We have two daughters. We we're preparing for Christmas in Green Bay. Uh, she has to fly, fly out to meet me. Well, she didn't have to. She flew out to be with me. And my mother-in-law and uh, my two daughters, they flew back to Mississippi, and we were going to meet them after the game. So that logistically, there was a lot of stuff going on. But my wife flew out and we stayed up all night Saturday. I, I actually have, had fell asleep and they let her in the room. And as you'd imagine, you know, we, because we, she knew my dad, she took driver's ed, you know, in high school with my dad. She knew my dad since we were, were kids because we grew up for, you know, day one, all the way through grade school together. So she knew him just as well as I did. We told stories. We laughed. We cried. There was very little sleep in that two days leading up to the game. Uh, Sunday night, um, you know, normally in normal circumstances, one thing about football, you do a lot of meeting. You, you, You go over the game plan. You watch film you go over the game plan again, you watch film, you just beat a dead horse. It's just, and the older I got, the more it was, it was painful to sit those through those meetings. Well, in Oakland, we never had, they may have had meetings, but they didn't have meetings with me because I was locked in my room and uh, just trying to digest what had happened and you're where I go from here. And the players would come in occasionally and check on me. I mean, it was great in, a, in one respect and not so great in others. The, the rallying of my teammates and coaches and the, the, the organization was unbelievable. And that was so important at that time. I was never really a guy who who sensed that type of stuff, nor really did it matter. You know, uh, I felt like a team needed to be close, but I, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I was, it's like my wife asked me, she's like, you know, a, a song from the eighties have come on and I, I'll be singing and I, I get the words wrong. She's like, you don't even know the words of that song. I'm like, I don't care. I, I don't care and I was sort of like that up until my father died about chemistry and things like that. But I really sensed the importance of it at that time. And, um, you know, I mean the knock on the door, it'd be a coach or, you know, uh, someone from the executive committee or one of the equipment managers or, you know, and and it was good. It was good. Um, I got to rest enough to, you know, to to refresh myself. That when other people came in the room, in fact, Sunday nights, the night before the game, and Mike Sherman uh, is our head coach, and the the standard procedure is you have you pretty much have the day off. You have a walk through it at, at some point, and then you have the rest of the day off until about seven o'clock. You have a team meeting, and then you kind of go into your offensive meetings briefly and kind of just rehash the game plan again. I didn't go to all that, but I asked Mike Sherman if he would let me speak to the team at at uh, 8.30, which is when, and then after that, you would go to Team Snack. I said, I'll, I'd, I'd like to speak to the team. He said, look, you don't have to do that, Brett. He, he said, I know that would be hard for you to do. Uh, the team knows you you know, you have their backs and all that stuff. I said, I, I want to tell them. And, um, so I, I went, spoke to the team and it was one of the hardest things I've had to do, but one of the easier things I had to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I just got up and just, just talk and I don't know, it probably lasted 15 minutes, but when we left out of that meeting, there was no question we were going to win that game. If there was ever a game that the entire team was locked in like no other, it was it was that game. And you know, getting back to the the initial uh, thought, I was I was talking about the question for me was, could I play at a level? That would honor my dad. Just playing to me wasn't enough. I think everyone else is like, Hey, if he doesn't decide, if he decides not to play, God bless him. It's understandable. You know, he don't know us anything, but w- when you know, I knew I was going to play, I put tremendous pressure on myself to not only play, but play at a level like I've never played before. And that would honor my dad. Just playing wasn't enough. And so you can you can imagine the the build up and the nervousness and the anxiety to to the fact that not that I was playing and that's what people don't necessarily get it was not so much playing playing was the easy thing playing at the level that only I knew what what was acceptable you know had we won that game I'd just played okay I think I would have forever regretted the fact that I didn't play over and beyond how I'd ever played before in my career. Well, thankfully the good Lord was looking out after me and at halftime, I had better stats than I ever had in my career in (laughs) in four quarters.
1: You threw for like three ninety in the first half. I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I threw for 400 yards in my career one time.
1: That's and a, I had 3.99 I mean, at, at halftime. And you're right. I mean, that – I couldn't – it had to be – it was like almost the divine intervention probably. I mean, after that game, not only do yeah. you – I mean, 41-7, to 7, after you giving that talk and those players, I, I'd have to think – I can only try to put myself in that position, but I'd have to think after that game seeing your teammates – and just going, was that the most unbelievable thing we've ever seen? It had to be, you know, considering the circumstances that were you're you're still yeah. mourning at that time. With all things considered, it had to be a pretty awesome moment when when you walk back into that into that locker room, going, "Well, pops, I hope I I hope I served you well tonight <laughs> because because if yeah. that doesn't make you happy, I don't know how much better we could do."
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it was. Uh... Uh, yeah, it, it was bittersweet because now I had to go face the reality and fly home to bury my father. But there was a, you know, it was like he was sitting on my shoulder, smiling. And, and you yeah, know, that's the best way I can describe it. Like, attaboy. That was the first attaboy I ever got, even though, he, <laughs> you know, he had passed away. That was the first one I got. I knew that I had succeeded uh, in my mind, improving, you know, how much I w- want to honor my father.
1: Pretty cool. Pretty cool. 07, your, your long reign is uh, coming to an end in, in Green Bay. You end up moving on and you go to the Jets and, and Minnesota. And, and Brett, I remember this, you know, during spring training, that, that particular time in, in history, the 07, 08, 09, it seemed like every spring training I'd be getting on the bus and people would be, all right, what's Favre doing? (laughs) Because you're going back and forth. I'm retired. I'm not retired. I'm retired. I'm not retiring. Give me a little snapshot of that time in history, starting in 07, where it's got to be kind of surreal for you. You've been this this Green Bay legend for so many years. Uh, Is it going to end? Am I going to stay here? Am I going to retire a Packer? Uh, what's it going to look like? You going to the Minnesota Vikings? To me, was you know bitter rivals of the Packers. That had to be weird for you putting that uniform on for the first time. But give me just a little brief snapshot of of going through those years from 07-09.
2: Yeah, you know, my last year in Green Bay was my best year statistically, believe it or not, uh, of all my of my sixteen years in Green Bay, uh, which is was for me was great. Unfortunately, we lost in the championship game. But I think for the Packers' management and coaching staff, it was not a good thing because, I, you know, and I get along with them great now. McCarthy and I are, are good friends, and I thank the world of him. But by having a great year, you know, they had drafted Aaron Rodgers, and he was on our team for three years, and, and his contract was actually coming up. But he hadn't really played yet. And, um, I think they felt like that I couldn't duplicate the year I had in 07 again. But how could they, you know, how do you tell that player it's time to move on or we're moving on or, you know, whatever? Um, uh, you don't. So what do you hope? You hope he retires. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a big boy. I, you No know, one twisted my arm and made me retire, but I kind of felt squeezed or pressured to retire. And and to be honest with you, year 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, when offseason came, the last thing I wanted to think about or even do was football. I I, I hated football. Then come May, June, I started getting, a, you know, the itch again. So that year was no different than any other year. When I started getting pressure from Mike McCarthy to to give him an answer of what I was ready to do, well, when he was pressure me, that was early in my my off season, actually a month after we would lost to the Giants in the championship game. And the last thing I wanted to think about was trying to you know regroup, do it again. So I told him a hell. If you want an answer right now, I'm not ready to, uh, you know, to commit to the team like I need to commit. So you're saying you're retired? Yeah. So I say I'm retired. Well, you know, fast forward, I retire, and, you know, a month or two later, they've, they've moved on in their minds. I get the itch, and word gets back to Mike McCarthy that I got the itch, and he goes on a, an hour tirade on the cell phone, <laughs> of why me coming back was not a good thing for the team, and I. So then, I knew I was going to come back and play, but I wasn't going to go back and play there. As much as the fans may have wanted me, and maybe the teammates wanted me, I was not going back there because I wasn't wa- wanted by the management nor the, the coaching staff. That's you know why why would I go back to a team that was hoping I retired and stayed retired? Um. Uh, so I was determined to go back to play the Packers again to prove I could kick their ass and still play. For Call it call what you want. That's, that's my initial reasons for to come, to come back. And lo and behold, they trade me to the Jets, so they'll never hear from me again, and, and I'll get lost in the shuffle. And I almost did. Hurt my bicep. Had enough. Definitely. I mean, I thought they had won. I said they they defeated me. They got what they wanted. Uh, I'm going home, licking my wounds, and uh, you know, got to have surgery. And the 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 general manager for the Jets at the time, uh, oh heck, Mike Tannenbaum, great guy. He wanted me to come back because he knew I had a hurt bicep, and I was playing great up until my bicep started hurting. And, uh, you know, he said, hey, we'd love to have you back, but I understand if you don't want to come back, I I know why you don't want to come back. Wink, wink. I'm going to let you go. Uh, But take a couple months and and think about it. And two months later, he called me and said, hey, what do you think? I said, I'd rather – retire, then go back and play for you guys. I, even though I love you, I said, I want a shot at the Packers. And he said, I'm going to release you and give you that shot. And he released me and the Vikings started calling right away. And I went and got surgery and the rest was history.
1: Pretty awesome story. When you put on that Viking, was it weird for you? It's kind of, no. I don't know if, I don't you know, know if it's as, good, but it's almost no, like I, I, Boston I, 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 Red Sox, Boston Yankees. Not, the, yeah, the idea was was
2: was weird more than the actual um, the wearing of the jersey.
1: Good
2: evening. Good evening yeah. on a podcast. Yeah, so it was it was it was more unusual the thought of being a Viking than actually when I dressed out and, and you know was in my first preseason game as a Viking, you know. I thought it kind of looked weird looking down and seeing purple but but it it felt it felt it felt like the right thing to do. And the organization was great, the teammates were great. It was what I needed at that point in my career.
1: Very cool. And another huge year in Minnesota, you're a pro bowler again, 2009. 2010, the Iron Man, it finally gets snapped and uh you know, you end up finishing with that. What did I say? It was 297 games in a row. Still unbelievable. The ability to post—I like to call it that. I tell that to baseball players. The ability to post. When you're a main guy on that team, I expect you to be in the lineup every day. If not, go ahead and sign yourself out of the lineup, and then I'm going to watch. I'm going to ask you why. <laughs> but I love that. And, and yeah. what what an unbelievable career you threw for over seventy one thousand yards, um, Packers. When, when they retire number two thousand fifteen, you go into the Packer Hall of Fame, number four is retired. Kind of a you know, kind of something you assumed it was gonna happen. Everybody in the football world knew that of course you're gonna retire far as number four. But when it when it actually happens and going back to those those fans that you played so many years in front of, pretty cool pretty cool day for you? No, it was more than
2: cool. You know, it was it was some some butterflies in my stomach of what kind of response I would get because keep in mind five years previous, actually four, you know I went there as a as a as an enemy as a as a rival as an opposing quarterback and I was not well received for, for obvious reasons. So that was my lasting memory of Lambeau, and uh, you know I mean I, I certainly wanted to be received. At this point, you know, the, the, let bygones be bygones, and I had I had been well beyond what had happened previous, and and moved on, and was honored that I was asked to come back. Was hoping that the fans would receive me the same way. Uh, was was hoping that the fans would receive me the same way, and they did. There were 75,000 people in the stands when there was not a game. I mean, how could you not be overwhelmed by that?
1: Pretty awesome, man. It's 15 years later, 17 years later, and Rodgers is kind of sitting in a similar chair to you that you were sitting in in 2007. Uh, 2016, you know, once again, kind of an obvious pick. You go into the Hall of Fame. 2019. Uh, you're part of that anniversary all-time team, the 100th anniversary all-time team. Uh, So now you got a red jacket and a gold jacket. I had Steve Largen on the show. I asked him which jacket was more important. Now I'll ask Brett Favre. Which jacket? Do you prefer one? Are they both the same? Is one better than the other one? Both pretty awesome to me. You
2: know, I I don't see how you could pick one over the other. I think that a tremendous honor, uh, one that I I cherish both equally. You know, look, we've talked about a lot of stuff today, and we also talked about humble beginnings. And uh, it could have easily gone the other way in a hurry, and, and not only once, many a times. So to be at the position that I was in, at the end of my career and to receive the honors and accolades and, and the, the, just the great things that have been said about me, you know, I don't need a jacket for that. You know, uh, all the things that I've accomplished to me speak for themselves. So when, when I was called and after the hall of fame and said, Hey, you, you made the one top 100 players of all time. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you uh, no uh, for real? The top 100 players of all time, I mean, I could rattle off 100 just, you know, instantly of the 100 that I think are great. Of course, most of them played before me. Uh, Some I played against and some I played with. But to be a part of that 100, are you kidding me? I don't need a jacket for that. But it's, it's quite an honor. Gotta I've you, never taken give me, for granted, I can tell you that.
1: Have to ask you another question you've been asked a billion times. Give me a little uh, something about Mary. <laughs> Cameron Diaz, everybody knows the scene. Um, do you like doing it? How would you get asked to do it?
2: Well, you know, I was at the prime of my career, so you. it, it wasn't because of my good looks, because I don't have them. It wasn't because of my charm. <laughs> or my acting ability, it was because I'd won three MVPs in a row and won a Super Bowl, and was asked to do a cameo in a movie. I, you know, that's the, that's the obvious reason why I was, was asked to do it. And I'll be honest with you. It wasn't something that I was like, finally, someone asked <laughs> me to be in a movie. I mean, it, it was one of those things that I remember vividly me and my wife lived out Miami and, and, uh, we were there for, Basically, uh, a day, stay the night, film a partial day the next day, hung out with the crew. But, we, you know, we went down there with the mindset of, like, how often do you get to be in a movie? It's not my cup of tea. It's not what I want to do. I don't want to be acting after my – but, you know, when it's all said and done, you look back and say, I was in a damn movie. Can you believe that? And, uh, and that's really kind of why I did it. I think they paid me a thousand dollars to do it. And, uh, the cast was not popular at the time. Cameron Diaz, that was like her first, first movie. Uh, uh, Ben Stiller, no one had heard of him. I mean, this was 1996, 97. I mean, we're going back way back before any of those had hit the big time. Matt Dillon was the, uh, uh, was really the, the the big actor at the time you know he was a pony boy and uh the lost boys and all that stuff uh, but the, but the, these actors were just kind of making their breakthrough so but they were cool we all went out to dinner uh, we had a good time together they were very nice they were likable they were uh uh extremely patient w- with my acting ability but uh it was a, it was a you know it was a, it was a, a reward for what I had done on the football field, if you want to call it that. I, not that I needed that as a reward, but it was an honor to be
1: asked. You want to tell the, the audience about the, the uh, nickel-dime story with the Ty Detmer, and, and then I'll get you out of here?
2: Yeah, so Ty Detmer was drafted my first year in Green Bay. He was drafted that same year. We were teammates, great guy, great friends. Still to this day, we're longtime friends. Ty Demmer, when he was drafted, I think he was drafted like seventh round, somewhere, you know, middle of the draft. When he showed up, he looked like the janitor. He, he had no muscle definition. He had zero athletic ability, but he had won the Heisman and put up a monumental numbers at BYU. And so, his his football IQ was off the charts. For you know, I mean, that's how he made made it in his career. He he knew his limitations. He knew what he could and couldn't do. He knew what the defense was doing. He knew where he needed to throw the ball. He knew where he was vulnerable when they blitz. I, on the other hand, was like, "Bring them on! I'll just throw through them, or I'll dodge and weave them." So I would always, we'd always sit in, in meetings. Uh, quarterbacks kind of sit over by each other, and I, would, I, for years, dating back to college, I would hear whether it be offensive line coach, or offensive coordinator, or head coach, say, "All right, you know, nickels in, or dimes in the game now, or we're going to run it because dimes in the game." And I would always think I would hear it, and I would think, now what in the hell are they talking about?" You know, again, keep in mind my earlier comments that I really didn't care. You know, I was like, but I was kind of intrigued. at like, what are they talking about? Why? And where's the net term nickel and dime? You know, where, who, who came up with all this? And why does that even matter? So I would hear it and I would hear it and I would hear it. And, and the, the more I was in pro football, the more strategy on on things like that matter. So, like, we're really going to run the ball when they bring in nickel. Well, I would hear that a lot, and it started begin, becoming, a, you know, a, a annoying to me because I wanted to know why. First of all, what is nickel and why are we – why do you want to run versus nickel regular, rather than regular defense? I mean, if if they're not playing to run very well in anything, just run it so I finally got up the nerve. I'm the starting quarterback. So I finally got up the nerve one day, and it was kind of like in passing, like I would do in similar situations. Hey, Ty, you know, I hear him talk about nickel all the time. What what is nickel? And he kind of looked at me, the Southern draw Texas uh, dialect, and says, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. You don't know what nickel is. I said, no, I don't know what nickel. Why do you think I'm asking you? He goes, well, it's basically they take out a linebacker and put in a DB. And I go, that's it. He goes, yeah, I go. Who gives a damn? (laughs) So dime, obviously they take out two and bring in two DBs. So there you go. I. Uh, the big reveal was revealed to me, and I, I thought to myself: Sometimes the guy that they bring in in nickels a better run defender than the linebacker. So they're making a big stink over something that really they shouldn't be making a big stink over. That was my mindset my whole career.
1: But it's great you know, though. There's the uh, na the naive the naive coming in, and it and it served yeah. to your benefit. Um, I think sometimes too much information is too much information. And
2: it clogs it up. It clogs coaches, it up. <laughs> the great coaches give you what you need and no, nothing more.
1: So, All said and done. What do you what do you want to be remembered for?
2: You know, I've often thought about that. And I think as simple as I can put it, numbers are, are meant to be broken. And they will be broken, some sooner rather than later. Some maybe after we're gone. So you can't, you know. I don't want to be remembered for numbers uh, because they'll they'll you know they'll be forgotten shortly. I want to be remembered as a guy that was a great teammate, was a guy that played the game, where, or to to an extent that the common fan. Had they got the opportunity to play, that's the way they would have played. I played with passion, excitement. Um, you know, it was it was an unscripted career for me. You, you know, how I celebrated with my teammates on the field was never a preconceived celebration. I it, it was just spontaneous. The way I played. The, the decisions I made, it wasn't perfect. But man, that guy. I've had so many people, Brett, tell me uh, tell me a lot of things. Like, man, you, you were a great player and all that stuff. But what what really kind of gives me goosebumps is when people say football ain't the same without you. It ain't as much fun to watch. The guys that play it, Don't seem to have the fun that you had and the passion that you had. And it's just not as much fun to watch anymore. That gives me goosebumps more than any other compliment that I get.
1: That's awesome. Brett Favre, one of the greatest to ever do it. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been been an honor. And uh, what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end As we bring in Dan Levy, the voice of the podcast, to ask a question from the fans. Dan. Gentlemen, how are you? We're good. We're good. (laughs)
0: Uh, All right, Brett with two Ts. This question is for you. This one comes from Pat in Sheboygan, and it kind of jumps off where Brett was going before. But Aaron Rodgers, in a similar situation that you were in, should he leave Green Bay or should he try to stay?
2: Well, it's simple. It's a simple answer for me. If Aaron Rodgers wants to play aside from where he wants to play, but if he wants to play and his goal and only goal is to go back to the Super Bowl or have an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, his best choice is in Green Bay. I mean, the last two years they wrote the script the way they wanted it to to be written and lost it. At home, and you know, in the playoffs, if he has had enough and wants to try his hand, hopefully make a Super Bowl, but just try a new team then then go. but it really comes down to what his main objective is, and I don't know what that is. I would think it's a be go to the Super Bowl, and if that's the case, then he should go back to Green Bay and
0: Last and final question. Aaron Rodgers came to Chicago, told them that he owned them, and he still owns them. Is that something that you used to own too? That he's borrowing from them?
2: <laughs> I've never said that. I would, you know, we I won more games than I lost there. Uh, there's no question about that. Or right, in overall, I won more games against the Bears than they they won against me. But I would never say I own them. Uh, you know, careers are short lived. Even twenty-year careers are short-lived, and before you know it, you're looking back on it, hopefully fondly, uh, laugh and cry about your career. You know, we just had the upper hand on the Bears, Uh, but we had some great matches against them, and they won their fair share. But fortunately, we won more. I just wish I would have been a part of more Super Bowls. That's all I. That's all I wish. uh, I, I. I don't want to say I could have done different, but I wish I would have had more Super Bowl opportunities.
0: Brett Favre, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. It was an honor.
2: Thanks for inviting me, man.
0: That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the moon 29 i'm dan levy bass on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one